0: Pollution isn't just a health problem, it's an economic problem.
1: Poor people of color are disproportionately exposed to pollutants that um, hold people down for generations.
0: Today I'm talking to two people. The first is Joey Slanger, who is a reporter at Quartz Magazine who writes a lot about environmental issues. I'm also talking to a scientist who runs a really unique program in northern Canada that looks at what pollution is doing to our water system. That and more on Science Island, KACR 96.1 in Alameda. Leah, two weeks ago, I got to go to this science conference in San Francisco, and it was truly incredible. I got to see what I think could be seriously a cure for cancer. I learned about laser dentistry. Nice. Um, yes. <laughs> the future is almost here. We will never get our teeth drilled again. <laughs> Um, and what else I, I learned about how you can use public databases to develop drugs. There's a 17 year old girl in Australia who's developed two different screening tests, just using public databases. Uh, it just left me with this feeling like we're living in a very exciting time.
2: That's very cool. Did you get a chance to sit down with anybody at the conference for an interview?
0: I did. So I talked to Zoe Schlanger, who is a writer for Quartz and Newsweek, and I talked to her about her piece, which recently won a Science Journalism Award for air pollution in this neighborhood in Detroit where they have like five coal plants set up in the same neighborhood. Um, So that was really interesting. And then I also met with this woman who's in charge of a Project in Canada where they've taken all these lakes up north and used them to test how, uh, for instance, pharmaceuticals change the food chain and the ecology of these lakes. So it's a really unique project, and they're so far north that they're kind of away from pollution, and they can really see what's happening to our ecosystem.
2: Mm, And it's kind of nice to have a light shone on pollution in the sense that i think a lot of people perceive the bodies of water around them as being so much cleaner than they were maybe a generation or two ago and so it's sort of perceived as like our work is over
0: the terrifying thing she found out she just dumped birth control into a lake a tiny amount of birth control in the lake and it completely messed up all the fish like the the female fish started to grow testicles or was it the male fish started to grow anyway it was wrong Whatever. Yeah,
2: that's a bad bad scene, Grant.
0: It's a bad scene. Um makes you worry about what's in your water a little bit, but I w- it's just a cool project and it's nice to know somebody's out there testing this stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm here with Zoe Schlanger, who's one of the country's foremost environmental reporters. She works for Quartz, but she recently won an award for a series of articles she did on Detroit. And the pollution problems there, which go far beyond Flint. Um, so, Zoe, your job is environmental reporter. Mm-hmm. I feel like even crime reporters get to see people put in jail and some happy outcomes come. Is there anything positive that happens on your beat? <laughs>
1: It's very rare. People typically react to my job title as, wow, that sounds so depressing. And it truly is. Um, I I feel like I actually don't have that much to be hopeful for, except the one cool thing is I get to see people in communities actually like kind of really organize themselves and, and have positive outcomes for their local communities. Sometimes environmental activism at the very local level works.
0: So what are some examples of that that you've seen?
1: In the story that you mentioned for about Detroit, um, there were extremely active local people who managed to get a coal-fired power plant shut down in their neighborhood after, I mean, it took about 20 years, but um, they made enough noise and educated themselves so well that they were able to make a case against the plant.
0: So as positive an outcome as that is, is there anything globally which gives you hope Are we just running this planet into the ground?
1: I have to say we are just screwing up this planet. It's pretty dark on the whole. I think I'm hopeful for the fact that um, due to the U.S.'s current administration, there are many more people who seem interested in climate change. It's amazing when it becomes such a political point um, how many more people will jump on board uh, about thinking about it and talking about it. Um, So the politicization of the environment is negative for many reasons. It makes people think... Um, that the environment is not a tangible thing that we're breathing and drinking and living in every day, um, but it does make people talk about it more, which in some ways, for awareness purposes, is good. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but after the election, we exchanged a couple emails back and forth about how we felt about things. Do
1: you remember this? Rings a slight bell. What did we talk about?
0: I, I think I was sort of grasping for straws as to what some sort of silver lining could be mm. on the the point that humanity finds itself on right now.
1: What did I say? Do you remember?
0: You were not as positive as I was trying to be.
1: Oh yeah, I'm not very good at that.
0: Um, I feel like it's a little bit different for me and because I have children, I really have to look over the horizon in a way. Um, I really have to believe that this is a positive place. Um,
1: I mean, uh, I wish I could be there with you. But last night, we're, at the, we're actually at the World Conference of Science Journalism right now. And John Holdren, Obama's former science advisor, spoke to us last night. And um, he gave an incredible presentation to show just how screwed up we really are in terms of climate change in an um, empirical level. And it's actually worse than I thought. <laughs>
0: so do you think that. we're over the, over the hill on what we could slow down or stop at this point?
1: Not necessarily, actually. there are. He did point out some good points about how much could change if we do choose to lower emissions dramatically now, um, although it doesn't look like that's possible. I did see, if we're looking for um, positivity, there was a very interesting study recently about tropical forests and that the deforestation of tropical forests is causing forests to become a net producer of carbon dioxide, So they're actually emitting greenhouse gases, which trees are not supposed to do that. We're never supposed to have that situation. But it also showed that any reforestation immediately sucks that back up. So in terms of um, a tangible solution, one thing that would be very cheap is to replant forests. Of course, that's politically difficult.
0: So global warming in particular seems very bleak to me. When I look at historical analogs in the early 20th century, it looked like humanity wasn't going to be able to grow enough food for the future population. And this is something I, I think I told you in the, the email exchange. Um, and then this guy, Hans Faber, figured out how to pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere, which gave us enough fertilizer. And it's something like one third of all the nitrogen atoms in your body come from the, the Faber method. It was basically this leap of technology which no one could have predicted. And the 20th century would be a a story of starvation if, if this hadn't happened. I, I don't know what that could be with global warming, but I'd like to think that maybe there's some sort of leap like that.
1: I think there very well could be intellectually. I mean, as a species, we do come up with these eureka moments that change everything. The problem is then going from the intellectual leap to the political buy-in required to actually mechanize it and turn it into a real solution. I feel like hunger is a far less polarizing problem than um, suggesting we all invest ourselves in uh, geoengineering, for example, to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Which would, if we found a technological solution that was cheap enough to do that, that'd be amazing. It'd still require a lot of R&D.
0: I think... The scary thing with global warming is there's just so much money on the other side of the argument. And I think at this point, people on that side of the argument, either consciously or unconsciously, have to know that they're like looting the the last days of uh, civilization as it's it's currently running. And I think they're okay with that.
1: Huh. That is a bleak perspective. You think they really know? Yeah. Wow. That's far more depressing. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, in our current economic model, short-term economic gain is worth anything, really. I mean, um, so that's definitely a thing. I mean, I do think that that is the perspective that's the most dangerous, is that when people say, yes, humans are adjusting the climate, we just don't know how bad it is yet, and we don't know how much Um, And they're exploiting the kind of unknowns that there are in science when in reality, yes, there's unknowns. But even in the low end of the unknown range of possibilities of what could happen, it's disastrous. So minimizing in any way the problem of climate change because of the uncertainty of science is a convincing argument for people who don't take a long look at this, but an especially dangerous one.
0: I feel like we might be nearing a tipping point in terms of public perception on global warming and climate change.
1: It feels like it's no longer acceptable to suggest that humans aren't causing climate change, at least. We've definitely seems to have gotten that far.
0: Yeah, and you even have Rick Perry arguing that it's happening, but you know, humans' input into the system is hard to measure. Um, I think we're getting close to the point where We may be in for a couple decades of panic on it, which is probably what needs to happen in order to fix it.
1: Yeah, I guess we just have to hope that panic doesn't flip into lack of doing anything for for how dire the situation is. There's that concern, too. Some people suggest, especially in science journalism, that science journalists shouldn't be positing only these extremely catastrophic outcomes because it will slow down action when people become start to feel that there's no hope that it will limit action. Although I don't, I don't believe that's true. I think, um, scaring people with true facts, not ever embellishing, but, um, scaring people can actually provoke quite a bit of action.
0: Yeah. And I don't want to be too, sky is falling on this. Um, you know, it does look like we're in for a five or six foot sea level rise by 2100. Um, which is terrifying and catastrophic, but that still gives us some time.
1: 2100 is not so far away. I mean, it does. You have countries like the Netherlands who invested heavily um, and probably not that long of amount of time have, have, have constructed incredible engineering feats to to fortify their their prone areas from flooding. So, it can happen. I mean, if, you know, it is by 2100 is enough time to do something if we actually start doing it.
0: Uh, so, one of the facts which climate deniers never bring up is the fact that sea level has been rising since 1944 when they really started a permanent measure of it. And it's happening at an increasing rate. Um, but sea level change is really just the most basic global warming problem
1: it is only one of many for sure it's definitely a major problem and if anything less than the gradual rise in sea level it's the um the increase in single days of catastrophic rainfall for example that then cause flooding or you know these one in 1000 year floods that start happening every 15 years which is something we're inching up towards um these are also major and these are all related to sea level rise, but there's a million ripple effects of that. But yeah, and then you have this long list of everything else, increased wildfire, drought, food becoming less nutritious.
0: Is there any positive thoughts that you have about global warming? Are we making any progress anywhere?
1: We are making progress in terms of societally talking about it, and that's really good. And certainly scientists, despite the crazy funding climate, are making progress in terms of coming up with viable solutions that are actionable. And economists are coming up with ways and reasons it's not um, economically bad to address climate change, and quite the opposite. So from an intellectual and societal perspective, totally. From the political perspective, absolutely not. And unfortunately, that's the only one that really matters right now.
0: It is kind of ironic that when we're talking about something that occurs over millennia, it may come down to four or eight years of the public picking one, one candidate over another. That's kind of a depressing thought. I want to get on to unfortunately not happier topics, but let's talk about this this article for Newsweek about Detroit. Um so this is a story about air pollution and one of the big takeaways was that this is disproportionately Um, hitting people in Detroit who are poor and don't have the means to defend themselves.
1: Yeah, this is the constant story, at least in the U.S. and in many other places, where um, your race is actually the biggest determining factor of whether or not you live near toxic pollution and are exposed to toxic pollution regularly. Um, And as we know, race and economic status, class, are intimately tied up to each other. Um, so what you end up having is that uh, poor people of color are disproportionately exposed to pollutants that um, hold people down for generations.
0: So here in California, we've done a pretty good job of of creating clean air with the exception of the Central Valley, which is has a lot of agricultural pollutants. We don't have coal plants, but we import a lot of coal. And I think that's sort of instructive about what's going on in Detroit, because this is a state where we can afford to pay a little bit more for electricity, and we've just kind of outsourced the problem to other places. And that's sort of the same thing that's happening in Detroit.
1: What always ends up happening when you have a commodity like coal, or basically when you need anything to be manufactured for you, there's collateral damage. Someone is living near the source of the pollution that's created by doing that, and so In many ways, southwest Detroit residents who live near coal-fired power plants and um, tar sands oil refineries and steel manufacturing areas are the collateral damage so that we can have electricity and steel and refined gasoline.
0: Was there any positive takeaway to that story? Did anything change after you wrote it?
1: Actually, something positive did happen. One of the coal-fired power plants that was dumping a disproportionate amount of pollution on this area, this little city called River Rouge, shut down. They announced the plans to shut down. And um, talking to people in the area said that the story did contribute to it. But I think more than that, um, the local activism was highlighted in such a way that that was finally a tipping point. And those activists, just residents in the neighborhood were who were fed up with ha- having asthma be so normalized, and all of their children were born with it, um, their activism ultimately helped shut down that plant.
0: How did you come across this story?
1: I was lucky enough to get a fellowship with the Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources. And they um, are just this not-for-profit that organizes environmental reporting trips for journalists. And they had, as part of a larger trip about the Detroit area, we learned about water pollution issues and ecological issues. And we stopped in River Rouge and spoke to Rhonda Anderson, who was just someone who was born and raised there. Um, who was furious about it. And she was there along with this woman named Elizabeth Gilbert, who um, goes door-to-door to people's houses. She is an asthma educator. So she's something like a nurse who goes to people's houses and tells them how to manage their asthma. And she just was had this heartbreaking story about how no matter what she does, people's asthma doesn't get better. And they continue going to the hospital and, in some cases, dying Um because they're constantly exposed to the air. There's nothing she could do about that. And that's that sparked my interest, and I followed Elizabeth and Rhonda around for a while.
0: And just like the Flint problem, we kind of fixate on children affected, which is obviously a horror, but this actually goes beyond this to becoming a multi generational problem.
1: Definitely. Um, there's more and more evidence now about epigenetic contamination, basically, of generations of people. Um, the thing about air pollution with these ultrafine partic- particulate matter, it slips through the, se- the the lung walls into the bloodstream, into blood cells, and those blood cells can travel throughout the body, affecting um, babies in utero. So that's one way that air pollution affects people before they're born. But also, it you know, it goes through the blood supply that feeds um, reproductive organs, which then alters uh, genes. So any future children of those people who are breathing this air have the potential to have altered genes that make them more susceptible to asthma and to allergies, which they then pass on to their children. So this um, affliction goes generation to generation, and there's been case studies about people who move away from contaminated areas, but then their grandchildren are still um, disproportionately susceptible to asthma because their grandmother breathed this toxic air.
0: The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, their job is to make sure that Americans' air and water is clean. So why haven't they stopped this problem in Detroit?
1: Well, they'd probably like to, but you know, the Clean Air Act um, is an extremely limiting document. It hasn't really been majorly reformed since 1990. And we now know so much more about how desperately bad air pollution is for our health than we did in 1990. Um The thing about the Clean Air Act is that it regulates point source pollution. So it tells a coal-fired power plant, like, you can't pollute more than this much. Or, you know, and then the steelworks can't pollute more than this much. But what it doesn't do is regulate air pollution in aggregate. So if you live in a place where there's 50 sources of serious air pollution, there's nothing stopping the combined source from affecting you, even if it's wildly more than anybody should be exposed to. Um, so it's a fundamental flaw in the way air pollution is regulated. And at the state level, there's, uh, it becomes messier. The more local politics get, um, often that's where there could be more action. The Michigan Department of Environmental Quality could do a lot more, um, but there, be, there becomes problematic interests involved. It's very hard, hard for local agencies to regulate local, extremely powerful industries, um, which is a classic problem.
0: So here in California, West Oakland recently brought a suit or had a suit brought on their behalf because the port is located in West Oakland, and as a result, they have more air pollution. When communities like this are disproportionately affected by air pollution, or even if you're in a community which is not disproportionately affected by air pollution, but you're worried about the people of West Oakland, what what can you do?
1: You can, um, well, that's a great question. I think you could vote into office people at the local level who, are, who have platforms associated with health. Something we're seeing in Detroit, actually, after this article was published, um, Abdul Al-Sayed became the Michigan uh, health minister. I don't remember his exact title. The most important health professional in Michigan. Um, and he has begun advocating on behalf of these communities. So it really takes someone in power who recognizes the disproportionate impact um, and how race and class can have a factor in what kind of health you're afforded where you live. Um, I think that generally makes a big difference. And honestly, probably donating to local organizations that you think are doing a good job of getting the word out because public pressure does something.
0: And in a macro sense, do we have any chance of, of cleaning this place up? And by this place, I mean the planet Earth. The
1: planet? That is a tall order. Um, I think so. I think in the sense that I don't talk to young people anymore who don't believe climate change is real, who don't feel appalled at what's going on and think all of us adults have our heads in the sand for not doing something sooner. Um it's very cliche to have hope in the kids, but I think should they come of age before it's too late to do anything, which maybe that's moment's already passed. I'm not entirely sure. Um we'll be in pretty good shape in twenty years.
0: All right, Zoe, so, well thank you so much for coming on Science Island. I really appreciate you taking the time and congratulations on your journalism award. Thanks, Grant. It's fun to be here. I'm here with Pauline Girard, and your current job is...
2: Deputy Director of the IISD Experimental Lakes Area.
0: So this is a super interesting uh, project that I I recently came across. Um, There's a variety of lakes in northern Canada, which are used just for scientific exploration, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. We were set up uh, almost 50 years ago. So next year is our 50th anniversary by the Canadian government. Um, with the idea of looking at the impacts that humans are having on freshwater ecosystems at the whole ecosystem scale. So we're located in the boreal shield in a region where there's lots of little lakes and not a lot of people, and we basically treat our lakes like test tubes. So in the early 2000s, we were very interested, and we continue to be interested in in the idea of pharmaceuticals in freshwater environments. Um, A lot of pharmaceuticals are not treated by our standard wastewater treatment plants, and so they end up in water downstream from wastewater treatment plants and downstream from cities. Um, A very common pharmaceutical is uh, the birth control pill. It's used by millions of women around the world. Um, And so we wanted to know that it's a hormone that impacts uh, many living things, not only people. So we wanted to know what does that hormone have, what impact does that hormone have on fish uh, that are seeing elevated levels of it. So we added artificial estrogen to one of our lakes.
0: So how do you do that? Do you just dump a bunch of pills into the lake? (laughs)
2: Uh, We look at what is the average level of artificial estrogen that's seen downstream from from urban cities.
0: Wow, so this is tiny, tiny amounts of estrogen then?
2: Yeah, and then we add it, kind of simulating the way it's being added or the way it's coming into natural systems from wastewater treatment. Um, So we added it uh, slowly over the course of two years, I believe. And then we watched as we were adding it, you know, every week or every two weeks, we added a small amount. And over that two year period, we watched changes in the chemistry and changes in the insect populations and changes in the fish populations in the lake.
0: So don't hold out on us, what what happened?
2: So it's pretty crazy actually. Um, the fish, particularly the smaller fish in the system were very uh, highly affected by the estrogen and the male fish, fathead minnows, those are kind of species that we were really looking at. They're little minnows. They, the males started to become feminized. So their reproductive organs started to act as if they wanted to make eggs and they lost the ability to reproduce. And after three years, the population totally crashed.
0: That's kind of amazing. So what does that mean when a male fish starts to have female characteristics? Like what, what would show up?
2: The, the important part is it means that they don't are no longer producing sperm and they cannot uh, reproduce. So there's no new baby fish coming into that lake. What we've been able to show is that uh, estrogen does have an impact on uh, freshwater systems and that there should be kind of stronger regulations in place to control uh, estrogen or clean up estrogen uh, as part of wastewater treatment processes. Um,
0: so are these lakes considered to be mostly pollution-free because they're so far north and outside of where people normally live?
2: Yeah, they're very, very pristine. Um,
0: w- what's it like to just walk around them? Like, what's your day-to-day when you're up there?
2: Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, they're, they're small boreal lakes, and it's in a region um, with a lot of pine Uh, and spruce, so coniferous forests. There is wildlife. We have bears and moose uh, and wolf, coyotes, but you don't see them very often. It's not what a biologist would might call a productive area. There's not a lot of food. It's pretty cold. The lakes are frozen from mid-November, early December until uh, mid-April.
0: So kind of rapid fire, like what what are these... The, the things you guys are looking at now and what's what's going to come up from you guys
2: we're starting next year a big project looking at the fate of uh, oil in freshwater systems very little is known about what happens to uh, oil when it hits fresh water and you know oil is uh, moved around north america with pipelines and on trains and there have been spills and there will be more spills And the way it is right now, we don't know what's going to happen and we don't know best how to clean it up. We're at the same time going to be doing a shoreline study where we add oil to uh, enclosures that are on the shoreline and looking at different remediation technology and trying to understand really what's the best technology for different shoreline habitat. And we're going to really try and figure out in a field setting, um, understand oil and freshwater systems so that we can make recommendations about how it can be cleaned up when there are spills and habitats that are most sensitive to oil so that maybe we can avoid those habitats when um, pipelines are being designed.
0: All right well thank you so much for talking to me Polly and it sounds like a really unique project and I You're appreciate so you welcome. taking the time. Thank you. that's it for science island i want to thank my two guests this time zoe schlanger you can read her stuff at quartz and also parlene gerard thank you so much for coming on and thank you to my co-host as always leah hitchens thank you so much we will be back with a new show next week at the same time on kacr 96.1 fm in alameda this is science island